That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's, what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. Is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello and welcome to another beautiful day in South Bend, Indiana. Big news this week were the riots in France. They may be still be going on. They may have stopped, but uh, it was big news. Uh, in the Bonnelieu surrounding Mage, France's major city, Bonnelieu is their word for a suburb. Uh, we had flames and anarchy, one confirmed death, hundreds of injuries, approaching a billion euros worth of damage. Vicious street battles continue to rage across the country, pitting immigrant descendants of blacks and Algerians against police and native citizens. Most of, much of the violence has taken place around luxury consumer goods stores that supposedly, supposedly the politically aggrieved minorities have been looting at an alarming rate. Law enforcement is on the defensive with their national union publicly decrying their inability to control the savagery. This is taken from a really good article in National Justice Party uh, about the riots. Uh, catalyst for this uh, riot was uh, the arrest and death, almost arrest, the death of a 17-year-old Maghrabi criminal named Nahel Merzouk, who uh, was shot by the police after stealing a car. 
Um, there's a law that was passed in 2017 which said that the French police are instructed to shoot restless drivers, reckless drivers that seek to escape arrest. Uh, the uh, the uh, officer who shot him uh, is going to be tried nonetheless. The whole situation is reminiscent of the 2020 race riots that uh, took place in the United States following the death of George Floyd. And the article goes on to say, this is not a coincidence. I noticed that immediately. What you had here uh, was completely different than the yellow vest demonstrations which took place years ago. That was a legitimate protest. It was a bread riot, if you want to talk about that. Bread riots in the Middle Ages uh, came about when the price of bread, largely because of usury and unrepayable debt, became uh, too expensive for the people to buy. And at that point, they rioted. This, this, uh, the Yellow Vest riot was a gasoline riot. Uh, basically, uh, Macron, who was working for the oligarchs, both nationally and internationally, decided to make the middle class, the lower middle class, the guys who have trucks that show up at your door and fix your refrigerator, uh, they were going to pay for the government uh, debt and they didn't like it and there were demonstrations and Macron completely ignored him, ignored them and his whole uh, government came under suspicion. Uh, the aura of illegitimacy has been haunting that government ever since. So now they got something completely different. Uh, this is, as, as the uh, National Justice Party said, it's a George Floyd riot. Now, we know that George Floyd, the George Floyd riot was a race riot. Uh, all over this period of time, I'm saying since 1954, the United States government has been involved in promoting racial division in this country. Uh, at that time, it was in the name of uh, racial breaking down racial segregation. I'm talking about Brown versus School Board, that decision in 1954. That was a Jewish operation. All of the sources there were Jewish sources. All of them were part of a program to, that had begun basically uh, in the beginning of the 20, 20th century when the Jews the, the Spingarn brothers from New York got together and created the NAACP, uh, ostensibly uh, to fight lynching in the South, but the real hidden grammar was to destroy black solidarity and uh, use integration as a way of bringing Jews, uh, I'm sorry, blacks under Jewish control. The man who understood this was uh, Marcus Garvey, uh, the black nationalist, uh, originally from Jamaica, but then living in Harlem. Uh, Marcus Garvey showed up at NAACP headquarters and was shocked to find there wasn't one black lawyer in the place. It was all Jews using blacks as their proxy warriors and revolutionaries. That's exactly what is the history of the United States over the course of the 20th century. The greatest triumph of this was the so-called civil rights movement of the 1960s, where Martin Luther King became a pawn of... Uh, Stanley Lieberman, I believe his name was, and uh, he was the Jewish fundraiser who basically directed Martin Luther King uh, uh, where to go, what to protest, and so on and so forth. So George Floyd was exactly that, and now we have evidence uh, from this article that the same thing is happening in France. Okay, we have uh, WikiLeaks 2010. Uh, it turns out that uh, in 
uh, during the first Obama administration, uh, he appointed a Hollywood Jewish mogul by the name of Charles Rivkin to become ambassador to France. Uh, when Rivkin got over there, he noticed that the French are white. Now, I've been talking about this for a long time, and the, the white boys really struggle with abstract thought. They are challenged whenever it comes to abstract thought. They look at pictures all the time, and they see black and white because they can't think properly, okay? White is a category of the mind that it gets imposed on populations for political purposes. I've been saying this for years now. What is a category of reality? The French language is a category of reality. You can look it up in books, okay? This is the language that they speak and it is the basis. It's not the only, it's not the only indication of French ethnicity, but it is the fundamental basis of French ethnicity. The French are not white. Okay, you can't be white until you come in contact with black people. That's what happened in the United States in Virginia in the 17th century. That's where the word white took on meaning. And it took on meaning in France uh, over the course of the post-World War II period when large numbers of formal col former colonials from Africa started arriving in France. This type of migration was politically motivated uh, to divide the French people. It's the same thing that happened in America during the 1950s and the 1960s. The only difference is that in America, it was internal migration. It wasn't from Africa. It was from the states in the South. Uh, and direct rail lines could tell you where you were coming from. So all the black folk in Chicago, they came from Mississippi. And the black folk in Philadelphia, they came from North and South Carolina, and the Ford Foundation was behind it. They hired Leon Sullivan, uh, a big one of these big mover and shaker black ministers from Philadelphia to go down to North and South Carolina and recruit people to come up and drive people like my family from what were then ethnic neighborhoods, Irish ethnic neighborhoods, the one in which I, into which I was born. Okay, same thing happened in Chicago. There we, um, Leon Sullivan was asked once to go to Chicago. Uh, I'm sorry, went, was asked once to go to Mississippi. He said, I can't, I don't know anything about Mississippi. I don't know how to speak to those people. It's a completely different group of people. Anyway, that's what happened in the United States. And over the post-World War II period, the French elites collaborated in the same thing for France because they wanted to divide and rule. The oligarchs wanted to divide and rule. And suddenly you got this conflict here uh, between uh, the revolutionaries, uh, the 68 revolutionaries, Daniel Cohn-Bendy, uh, a Jew, one of the many Jews that were involved in that revolutionary, and the French people or people like de Gaulle who was driven from power. And you have both of these contradictions now in Emmanuel Macron. Okay, who on the one hand is a loyal tool of the oligarchs, but on the other, and so in a sense, uh, in agreement with this divide and conquer strategy that involves bringing uh, Algerians, uh, Africans into France as a counterbalance to the uh, native population, to displace the native population. 
But on the other hand, he has this residual French sense of autonomy that he must have inherited from de Gaulle. There's this kind of uppity nature that the French have, and he's been showing it uh, to the Americans uh, increasingly. He's been increasingly unhappy with the American demands, which have gotten more and more draconian as time has gone on. Uh, one of the men who noticed this was Thierry Maison, uh, who has written uh, 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 his account of the whole French uh, riot story, and he said it began with Paul Wolfowitz and the neocons. He could, that's a legitimate use of the word neoconservative. Uh, who basically created the defense policy, which says that no one, this is after 19, uh, the fall of communism, 1991, he issues a, a defense department memo and saying, basically, we have total spectrum dominance and we're not going to allow anyone to challenge it. Well, okay, uh, who's that? Well, it turns out that it's Europe. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, I thought they were our friends. Uh, wait a minute, I thought they were all in NATO. Don't we have an alliance? NATO is there to destroy Europe. It's to keep the Germans down and the Americans in and the Russians out, as someone, um, Washington insider once said. That's exactly what it was. And when you let the Jew control your policy, it's going to get out of control. And that's exactly what happened during the Biden administration when the Biden's minion, uh, the Jews took over his administration and ran it uh, with him as the front man. I'm talking about people like Anthony Blinken, who enters, begins every conversation by saying, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, and wins every conversation unless he's talking to serious people like the uh, premier of China who laughs at him behind his back. And you, America loses influence because of that. Okay, the classic example of what I'm talking about is the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. We all know who did it. America did it. And the Germans are such docile slaves, sex robots, that they can't even ask the question. And they just go along. And so the policy now, is the war in the Ukraine, the basic policy is we're going to destroy Europe because Europe has enough power the European Union has enough power to basically challenge, challenge America's full-spectrum dominance over the entire world. That's what's going on. France uh, had Macron, uh, to his credit, was starting to get restive under the burden of being a lackey of the Americans, and he committed all sorts of offenses, including going to China and working out a deal where he paid for natural gas in yuan and not in dollars. This is the sort of uppity behavior that got Muammar Gaddafi murdered by Hillary Clinton. You cannot do this and not expect some type of payback. And here is the payback. It's Rivkin's dream of racial strife in France orchestrated by American agent provocateurs. Okay, great. Now we know what's going on. So what are we going to do about it? Okay. Now, one of the people I respect in this regard is Alain Soral, who has been proposing an alternative to racial and religious polarization at an organization he calls Egalité et Réconciliation. Uh, this organization, he used to uh, link up with Jew Donné Mbalabala, 
the Francophone African who was a comedian until the Jews shut him down. I met him uh, in Tehran. He did one of his uh, stand-up comic routines. Okay, it is what it is. Uh, and uh, the point of this uh, team here was uh, Soral saying, basically, we're not going to fall into the racial trap. We know, we know the trap you're preparing for us. We know the hidden grammar of bringing all of these uh, aliens into the country. And we're not going to fall for it because we think we can collaborate with the Africans based on a platform which is left wing when it comes to labor and right wing when it comes to morality. These moral, this is what Soral said, moral and virile solutions are the only program which permits France to avoid the terminal chaos into which it is now sinking. Okay, I agree with him. I agree. There is no, uh, we need some type of uh, end run around the racial polarization that is being artificially imposed on France. Okay. Then he gets into proposing uh, his solution. As I said, this quote, uh, this is a translation. I could read you French in my abominable French, but I'm going to spare you that. As I said during this short improvised speech, it is time for the Comité National de la Résistance for a new National Resistance Committee of all patriots who must imperatively put aside their egos, their boutique strategies, and their differences in details to engage in a common platform, a common fight to save France as when the sacred union was essential to drive out the occupier and the collaborators. Comme du temps où l'union sacrée s'imposait pour chasser l'occupant et les collabos. Collabos, slang for collaborators. Well, he's invoking the Holocaust narrative here. The common platform uh, that saved France is the uh, what allowed the French to drive out the Nazis and their collaborators. Now, when you're getting back to this, Nobody knows uh, that there was another side to this story. If you read uh, Logos Rising, you would know that on June 25th, 1940, after the northern part of France, including Paris, was placed under direct German administration, the rest of the country found itself administered by World War I hero Marshal Philippe Pétain who turned what is now known as Vichy France into the most philo-Catholic government since the revolution of 1789. Well, did you know that? Uh, calling his government uh, Régime d'Ordre Moral, Pétain replaced the slogan of the French Revolution, Liberté, Fraternité, Égalité, with Famille, Family, Travail, Labor, Patrie. Uh, country, a program which overturned the anti-Catholic animus of the Third Republic. Now, the real collabos here came after the war because the collabos we're talking about are Elie Wiesel 
and Francois Moriac, who basically translated Yid uh, Wiesel's Yiddish Holocaust memoir entitled Und die Welt hat geschwiegen into perfect French when it got released as Nuit, Night, which won both Moriac and Wiesel the Nobel Prize. What you're seeing here is identity theft and cultural appropriation of the suffering of all the people who uh, lived during the uh, World War II. The essence of that cultural appropriation was Wiesel's claim that God died at Auschwitz. That was not the story after World War II. There were, we had a story that existed uh, for years, for a whole decade before that, that was in the exact opposite story. And I'm going to show you what it was. I don't know whether you're old enough to remember, but as a child, I was uh, went to my father's best friend's home and he showed me pictures of Dachau and the dead bodies lying there. As a child, I saw this. Dachau was the paradigmatic concentration camp after World War II. And the books that got written about it were books like this, uh, which I have just read. Christus in Dachau. Christus in Dachau, written by an Austrian priest by the name of uh, Johannes Lenz, Father Lenz, who was in Dachau. He was in Dachau beginning in 1938. Wait a minute, that's even before World War II. Dachau was famous because it was founded in 1933, when the moment that Hitler took power. And it was founded as a way of allowing Hitler to get rid of his enemies, his domestic enemies. And the main domestic enemy at this point in Germany was the Catholic Church. That is the point of this book. There were 1,500 priests in Dachau. Most of the people who were interned at Dachau were Catholics with the Jews finishing a distant third. This story, the, and so what is the moral of this story? According to Father, Father Lenz, it's the exact opposite of Amy Wiesel's story. And that is, the Entchristlichung Europas hat zur Katastrophe Drittes Reich geführt. The dechristianization of Europe led to the catastrophe of the Third Reich. That's the exact opposite. What he's saying throughout this entire book is that godlessness, Gottlosigkeit, was the main characteristic of the Third Reich. And certainly the main characteristic of the thugs, the SS thugs, who basically ran the concentration camp. They were, they were to paraphrase Joe Breen, they were the scum of the earth. They were mostly criminals, pimps, uh, petty criminals, 
uh, and uh, once, they, once they got into a position of power, they were sadistic brutes who tortured the priest because they understood the message. And what was the message? This is Rosenberg, Hitler's uh, propagandist. Rosenberg, uh, for the benefit of our German listeners, Rosenberg hatte schon 1938 auf die deutsche Reichskulturtag in Nuremberg erklärt, der erste Feind des Nationalsozialismus ist die katholische Kirche. Rosenberg declared at the Reichskultur uh, Conference in Nuremberg in 1938, the worst enemy of national socialism is the Catholic Church. Daher muss sie vernichtet werden, therefore it has to be destroyed. Hitler uh, obviously was of the same opinion. Ich will die katholische Kirche zertreten wie ein Kröte. I am going to stomp the Catholic Church to death like a toad. That's the testimony. This was the main opposition to Hitler. It wasn't Jews. It was Dachau was a Catholic operation that became simply extraordinary because of the spiritual life that these people lived. And what is the message uh, beyond that? That suffering has a purpose. Tell me one Jew who will tell you that suffering has a purpose. The purpose of Jewish suffering is Jewish extortion of money from countries like Germany. That is the whole purpose of Jewish suffering, as our friend Stuart Eisenstadt just announced, the man who's responsible for the looting of Europe for reparations payments for Jews. This is a, this is what I'm, what uh, Father Lenz is saying is that there was a spiritual message that God couldn't convey in any other way but by suffering. Because no one would listen to him unless they were in a position of total uh, subjugation and suffering. And so as a result, those people came around and uh, God listened to their prayers. That's the whole point. If you didn't have a prayer life in Dachau, you were going to end up dead one way or the other. And God listened to their prayers. And so there was a moment when suddenly uh, the whole regime changed. Uh, 1942, suddenly the bishops and Pope Pius X get to the German leadership and the leadership capitulates. Uh, this is a work camp, okay? They probably argued that you're better workers if you give them enough to eat, and so the food improved. They were allowed to get packages from uh, friends and relatives outside the camp. And the strangest thing of all is they were allowed to suddenly have mass. And so you had 1,500 priests involved in a spiritual revival in Dachau. Does this what happened during this period of time, after World War II, and I think that our friend Soral uh, uh, has, is a victim of it, is basically the, the Holocaust narrative got hijacked. It was a Catholic narrative as of this point. 1955, the paradigm for the concentration camp is Dachau, and this is a Catholic story. After Wiesel's book comes out, it becomes a Jewish story because, surprise, surprise, the Jews control the publishing industry, and that is what it's been ever since. To this day, where it still determines basically uh, our entire culture. It was hijacking. The narrative, the story got hijacked. 
The narrative got hijacked. It's identity theft. The Germans were deprived of their identity. Uh, they were deprived of their own history. They were deprived of the ability to talk about how they had suffered. These are Germans suffering at the hands of other Germans. How do you explain that? How do the white boys explain that one? Uh, let's, uh, I, hope, I hope some white boys respond here and they can explain to me how race explains Dachau. It was the godless against the Catholic Church. That's what was going on there. And the Jews, they were there, okay, but they were bit players in this drama. The Jews would come to people like Father Lance and they'd ask to be baptized because they couldn't stand up without some type of spiritual help. And the only source of spiritual help in this world is Jesus Christ and the sacraments of the church that he founded. And so the Jews would come and the, the priest would help out. Uh, but majorly, it's basically the Catholic Church going toe-to-toe -to -toe with atheism. That's the issue. He says it repeatedly. If you give up belief in God, you're capable of doing anything. And you gave these people, if you give these people the power, these sadistic brutes, who inhabited the netherworld of places like Vienna and Frankfurt as pimps and drug dealers and petty criminals, and you put an SS uniform on them, and suddenly they are free to do whatever they want, and they can torture and kill anyone. And there are plenty of people who died as a result of that. So this is the story I'm going to, I'm in the process of working it through, this is the story of the Holocaust narrative, and this is why we need to be able to express our own history and break through all of the propaganda. And let's start talking about the real story of what happened there. I went over time, but uh, that's my rant for the day. Let's hear what you have to say. All right. Hello, this is uh, Mike Bajakis, Dr. Jones' assistant. Um, the call-ins, for those who don't know, are made via our Telegram channel. Uh, the links are in the description. Uh, in Telegram, I'll call on those who raise their hands, and then later in the stream, we'll read off uh, questions uh, on Cozy. Uh, there are no paid super, uh, super chats required. And try to keep questions on subject. Try to keep to one question. Uh, be respectful of time, and do not forget to unmute yourself after I call on you. All right, let's go to Cozy. Not cozy, telegram. Um, let's see. Where is he? Bert, Bert, where is he? Just popped up. There is Bert JT. Go ahead, Bert. Hi, can you hear me now? I can, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I'm from Belgium. This was very interesting. Um, yeah, a month ago, I also asked questions in this group, but this is something uh, different. A granduncle of me he was from Belgium as well, and he was imprisoned in a camp also during the war in Germany, a prisoner of war. And it was an, um, a lager, um, Blankenburg it was called in Saxony, but it was uh, from Treblinka, an Außenlager. And the majority of this camp was also uh, Belgians, and they were, of course, Catholics. And it's very interesting um, because I have some um, yeah, testimonies about this uh, period. And 
that the what they kept them alive was pray um praying the rosary and the holy mass but i it's the first time i hear about that um, a majority or a large part of these uh, were catholics in these camps so so my question is uh, for some literature about this and so i uh, yeah it's kind of new for me so yeah well it's that's because you haven't read Christos and Dachau, and that you haven't read it because it's out of print, uh, basically. I think there's an English edition now, uh, but it's because the story has been suppressed. It's been suppressed. Yeah. It's that simple. We, we, ha we have had, this is identity theft. The Catholic Church has had an identity stolen, and largely over this period of time, what happened is you have people like Daniel Jonah Goldhawk, a complete academic fraud, that the Jews have exposed, Jews like uh, Finkelstein and Ruth uh, Beer in, uh, in Canada, expose this guy as a complete fraud, basically blaming the Catholics for, uh, the, for the Holocaust. The Catholics were the victims. They were the victims before the Jews were. In Dachau, it was, all, it was mostly all Catholics because that was, they were perceived as the main threat to Nazi hegemony over the mind of the German people. The same thing got imposed on Belgium, wherever they uh, they conquered. The 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 biggest influence. Let's go back to uh, Austria, the beginning of this. The Anschluss, nineteen thirty-eight. What they did, they decapitated the Catholic uh, Austrian government, and they all ended up in Dachau. The entire government ended up in Dachau. They were all Catholic because Austria was a Catholic country. And then you add Poland uh, to it. Now, obviously, there are going to be more Poles in Auschwitz because Auschwitz is in Poland. But when it came to the Catholic, the Polish priest, the Catholic priest, they all got shipped to, to Dachau. There, was two, there were two bishops. Not one German bishop got sent to Dachau because the, the, the Nazis wouldn't dare to do that. Even though one of the bishops, uh, uh, Clemens Gott von Galen, the Bishop of Münster, was the most vocal critic of Hitler in Germany at that time. Even though he supported the German attack on the Soviet Union because of communism, but when Hitler started going after Leben und Wertes Leben, life, uh, uh, the invalids, uh, those people, uh, euthanasia, when he got involved with euthanasia, uh, Gott von Gallus stood up to him. There were two bishops in, Ger in Dachau, one was French and the other was Polish. Okay, so this is the suppressed history uh, this is the, the, the real Holocaust narrative, and we as Catholics have been deprived of our own history, largely because of a completely feckless, bootlicking acad Catholic academe, symbolized best of all by Notre Dame uh, University, uh, which goes along with every outrage that the American empire proposes. But also, I'm sorry, but I have to bring this up again. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger played an enormous role in imposing this, in, in, in basically depriving the Catholic people of Bavaria of their own history. Why didn't, when Ratzinger became Pope, he went to Munich. Why didn't he go to Dachau? Why didn't he go to Dachau and hold up this book and say, today I'm going to talk about Christus in Dachau? Why did he do that? He betrayed the German people in a way that John Paul II did not betray the Polish people. And that has led to the 
terrible situation that the entire church is in right now, but specifically the absolutely abysmal situation that the German Catholic Church is in right now. Yeah, this is so much interesting. I had never heard of it. Uh, so um, I'm also a, a bit of a um, academic connected from Catholic uh, University in um, uh, Belgium. But yeah, too much, uh, too little is written about this. And so this book is called uh, Christus in Dachau. Yeah. See, if, are yes. you are you near? Uh, are you near? Uh, uh... What what's the big Catholic university there? Are you uh, Leuven? Leuven, yeah. Go to. I'm sure yeah. the, the the library at Leuven would have a copy at the university. Yes, yes there. certainly they were. Do you read? So, do you read? My go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, go ahead. What's your no, question? My, I made a mistake. My grand uncle, he was from Belgium. He was imprisoned in an Auslander. I said Treblinka, but it was Tora. He was in Buchenwald first, and then in uh, an, in Blankenburg. It was an uh, uh, some uh, side lager of of uh, um, Dora. So, and yeah, it was. I have I have detailed testimony testimonies about this. So. Good. And they were the majority of these were Christians, Catholics, and what kept them alive was praying the rosary. Absolutely, and having the mass. That's exactly the lesson of yes. of this book, Christus and Dachau. They, he said basically, yes. we would not have survived without God's help, and you get God's help yes, by by praying. And and he said we were I, we were in a situation where we were helpless, absolutely helpless at the hands of these sadistic SS criminals. And the only thing that we could do was pray. And that's the lesson of Dachau because God heard their prayer and they got out. They got out to tell the story. That's the lesson, yeah, of, yeah. That's the, lesson of the Holocaust. And guess what? The, uh, the Jewish appropriation of the Holocaust now gives us the exact opposite message through people like Ailey Wiesel who says, God died at Auschwitz. No, he didn't. He certainly didn't die at Dachau. And the people who survived know that because they prayed to God and God delivered them. Yes, thank you. This is so fascinating. Um, You're welcome. Yes. Okay. Okay, moving on here. Uh, thank you, Bert. Let's see. Jesse Engel. Go ahead, Jesse. Hi there. Can you hear me? I can. Great, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for allowing me to, to talk with you. Um, I, if you'll permit me, I have, I have two related questions. Um, this is something I've been kind of dying to ask you. Um, I was wondering if you see any relation between the promotion of multiculturalism, which I, I know has a couple different meanings. I'd be curious to know what it means to you, but I was wondering if you see any connection between multiculturalism and the Catholic heresy of indifferentism? That's my, my first question. Uh, multiculturalism is a black operation largely now uh, carried out through uh, weaponized migration to basically destroy the native populations of Europe uh, and the United States as well. Uh, multiculturalism was the academic manifestation of this. It was, I, I remember a poster, poster, 
uh, oh, wait, there's a black kid and there's a red kid and there's a yellow kid and there's a white kid. And they all got their arms around her, around them and were talking about, I forget where, what word it was, uh, tolerance or let's get along. Guess who sponsored that? The ADL. Does that tell you <laughs> who's behind us? Now, what is the one group that will never assimilate and never get along with anyone else and doesn't believe in collaboration unless they're in control? Of course, it's the Jews. Okay, and Israel is a racist state, uh, putting this into practice. So I knew it was I knew it was phony all along, but now it's gotten to the point where it's actually uh, uh, being carried out, I think, through weaponized immigration. Now, what this has to do with indifferentism uh, is something I can't tell you at this point. It doesn't sound like that to me. Uh, I think that there is a, a tendency on the part of Catholics to say Catholic means universal. Well, it does. It means according to the whole, and that means it involves the entire spectrum, the whole church uh, throughout the world. That doesn't, that's not the opposite of ethnic identity. Only an idiot would say that, and there are plenty of idiots out there. The Catholic Church is unity in diversity, which is another word for beauty, which I discussed in my book, The Dangers of Beauty. The only reason the Catholic Church is successful is because it accepts diversity and the classic, well, Europe is the classic example, but I guess the classic example in Europe would be the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which basically honored all of the ethnic groups that made up that, that mosaic of different people uh, and uh, tried to unite them with the lingua franca uh, of German, the German language. Uh, and was successful. And the tragedy about Germany is that basically the, it was the Prussians who unified Germany uh, and it should have been the Austrians. But anyway, that's another story. So you, what's your second question? So it, it's kind of related. Um, thanks for answering that. Um, it, my second sort of question is the reason I kind of drew a connection between uh, multiculturalism and indifferentism is because it seems to be that the prevalent view is that um, that all all ways of life are equally good, all worldviews are equally good, all religions are equally good, which seems to me like kind of just a, a superset, if you will, of indifferentism. And um, so, anyway, my my second question was was that. You know, I've noticed that people are generally uncomfortable today with with making um, generalizations about groups of people, um, even even if they're good. Um, like I just made a post on Reddit and and um, I said, you know, if it's OK to make, a, a, you know, a positive like a compliment about a group as a group, then why is it bad to uh, to give a criticism? And someone good, responded good saying question. that both of them are prejudiced. My question was, my question was, how do you think it's come to be? Like, what's the genesis of of sort of of philosophy over the years that has led to the state of affairs where where people are unwilling to make general statements about groups of people? Um, and because it seems like on one hand, you know, a hasty generalization is a logical fallacy on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's generalization is also a valuable tool for, for doing abstract 
Yeah, for, you can't you can't thought. have abstract thought without categories. It's impossible. Right. There is no so how, how did there, we get here? Well, the question. short answer to that is William of Ockham. Uh, William of Ockham wrecked philosophical thought in England and did a good job of wrecking it in Europe as well. Uh, I, uh, the classic example being Martin Luther, who was a, a, a nominalist like William of Ockham, who said basically all categories are categories of the mind. There are no categories of reality. And so what you did, uh, um, Aquinas accused the nominalist of blasphemy because you're saying that there is no order to the mind of God. You're saying any order to the mind of God is what I impose on God. So the Trinity, you're not talking about God, you're talking about a category of your mind, you're imposing it on God. And so what you had in effect was Catholic Islam, which is basically that uh, the, any, any statement about God's being would be blasphemous. That wrecked the ability to form categories. And that has existed to this day. So that recent uh, uh, kerfuffle with Patrick Coffin, where thugs like uh, Mark Shea came out of the woodwork and accused anybody who didn't throw me under the bus of being an anti-Semite, uh, was based on the fact that I say the word, the Jews. That's my sin. The fundamental sin that I commit, according to this weird religion that rules us with an iron rod, is that I say there is a category of reality known as the Jews, and we can say things about that category of reality which are true. Now, according to the wisdom of the world, of course you can say the word Jews if you say uh, the Jews are all financial geniuses and the Jews uh, uh, suffered under Hitler and the Jews uh, deserve uh, reparations payments from um, the German government. That's fine. Okay. But as soon as you, then you get into that tricky area where the Jews are uh, behind gay marriage. Whoa, that sounds anti-Semitic to me. Uh, except that Amy Dean said it in Tikkun Magazine. So as long as it's positive, it's okay. But if you say exactly the same thing with some type of negative tone of voice, you're an anti-Semite and the ADL is going to destroy your life. This is completely intolerable. We got to stop it. Okay, we have to stand up to this tyranny right now. Uh, stand up to this bad philosophy. I mean, my, my old buddy, Janet Smith, folded like a cheap suit because she didn't understand categories. Well, and on top of that, she just uh, didn't have the guts to stand up to a thug like, uh, by the way, Mark Shea is working hand in glove with the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center to give you some indication of his bona fides as a Catholic. Anyway, it's a category mistake. If you want to go into detail here about the problem of nominalism, I recommend Logos Rising, which covers it in detail. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was a, a very helpful response. You're welcome. All right. We're going to do uh, one more here on Telegram. We're going to have to, we'll, we'll go a little bit longer because I, I spent, uh, I spent, too long do, during my introduction. Good. So you want to do one more and then cozy, or just a couple more? Just do two more and then two we'll more. go to cozy. Alrighty, uh, Alex, you're up to bat. Go ahead, Alex. Hey, good evening, Doctor Jones. Good evening. 
Have you have you read um, the secret relationship between blacks and Jews by um, the Nation of Islam? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? I I I have uh, I have read various parts parts of that. I have a a, a favorable attitude. I think that uh, I was just what was I looking up? Something on uh, oh it was Ron Ron Unz uh, was just going over the Black Jewish Alliance, and he said that the uh, the Nation of Islam's uh, report on uh, Leo Frank is the best out there. It's the best out there. So I've been trying to make contact with, uh, they're about 80 miles away. Okay. And I, I sent them, I got contact by one of Minister Farrakhan's people and he, he sent me some books and I sent him the Jewish revolutionary spirit and uh, we're supposed to get together, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay. Thanks Dr. Jones. You're welcome. All right. Anyone in Telegram like to ask a question? Oh, here we go. They're popping up now. Uh, Dextria. Go ahead, Dex. You there, Dex? Dextria? Don't forget to unmute. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for your work on this. Uh, it is it is not written enough about, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on your the Holocaust narrative. Yes. I, uh, I wanted to explore this like question of why Catholics were ending up in concentration camps. I mean, it seems reasonable that they would object to the euthanasia and the sort of um, uh, useless eaters policies of the Third Reich. Um, but even today, like a lot of Catholics, the plurality of Catholics in the United States are voting Democrat. And I could imagine that at that time, there were a lot of Catholics involved in Weimar and all of this. No, it's really not Catholic. No, no, so no. I'm wrong. curious. No, no. First of all, right. first of all, uh, 1919 was a crucial year. The the Jews uh, took over uh, Munich. They they created the Soviet Republic of Bavaria uh, because uh, Germany was prostrate at this point after the Versailles Treaty, uh, and the the uh, German the Bavarian patriots, the uh, militias took it back. Okay. So it, it, right. it, this, if you're talking about the Weimar Republic, it, the Catholics were not involved in this thing. Right. They, they were, well, they, uh, the other, the other issue is the, uh, the Protestants split. Uh, there was the Deutsche Christen, German Christians who went completely along with Hitler. And then there was the Bekennende Kirche, the confessional church of people like Bonhoeffer, who would not go along. So, but the Catholic, there was never any split in the Catholic Church uh, over this thing. And the Catholic Church, they try, I, I think Bishop Graf von Galen is the best example. I mean, they, mm. they, they have, these bishops have a respect for political authority. There is a role that Caesar has in this whole thing. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God. They understand that. And he, right. as I said before, he supported the uh, attack on the Soviet Union. But when St Hitler stepped over the line and started his euthanasia program, he said, no, you can't do this. So the, the, right. the, the, the real issue is the fact that you can't limit the Catholic Church to Germany, whereas you do limit the Lutheran Church to Germany. It's a German state church. And all of these right. state churches uh, immediately fall under the, the, the heel of the leader, whenever, whatever the leader does, even when it's something bad. So it was not that way with the Catholics. Now, you can say, well, why didn't they engage in uh, resistance? Well, I mean, at the time, 
what are you supposed to do? Your country is under attack. Do you defend your country? I, I think I right. think that, that the, the the someone should have defended the German people. But by Absolutely. the time by, by the time they needed defense, the German army was had been destroyed. Someone should have defended the German people against the expulsions out of the uh, uh, of uh, Ostpreußen, where millions of I mean I'm not exaggerating. Millions of Germans died, largely of exposure on the road trying to get away from the from the Soviet army. Someone should have defended the German people against the firebombing of Dresden. But they didn't have an air force at that point. They were totally helpless. And the the, the criminals in charge of uh, the air war uh, showed no restraint and no mercy on these people. Yeah. Bomber Harris, the Americans went along. Uh, uh, this was a tragedy. Someone should have defended those German soldiers who were interned on the Rheinwiesen lager. Someone should have done it, but the German army had capitulated. It was broken, and and so this is part of the tragedy of of, of what what happened then. Yeah, I, it's a shame that it wasn't um, like a more faithful Catholic who stood up in Hitler's place, and uh, the church was at odds with Hitler and his ideology because nobody else was going to save Germany at that time. And it is, know, it is there is a tragedy here. There's they they dissolved the uh, Central. Partei, which was the Catholic Party, should they have done that? If they hadn't done it, I mean, they would have ended up in Dachau. This is exactly what happened to the Austrian government. You know, it was they didn't go along with the Anschluss and they were all deported and sent to Dachau. So this is you're in a, an extraordinary situation. And how do you deal with this situation? This is why I'm, I'm trying to talk about uh, uh, Soral's kind of glib invocation of the collaboration. Maybe the best thing that could have happened to France was the fact that uh, the, the, was the Vichy government. It was the most mm. Catholic government since the French Revolution. Maybe what we're talking about here is uh, uh, looking at the big picture and saying, look, France was punished for the French Revolution. It was punished almost immediately by the Russian army. Okay, it has been punished. The, it, the legacy of the French Revolution is one revolution after another. They can't get away with it. God is not going to let France get away with the French Revolution. This is the gist of that Chivalta Catolica article that I'm trying to sell on the Jewish question that I reprinted on the Jewish question. It was that was a hundred years of French Revolution, the hundredth anniversary of the French Revolution. And what is the legacy? You're controlled by Jews. That's the Catholic yeah. Church saying that then. That is the case now. Are you going? To, I'm saying maybe maybe we take take a step back, Alan. And maybe there's a better uh, uh, strategy here than simply invoking this uh, heroic uh, idea of the French resistance. Which was, let's be honest here, the French resistance was all communist and they engaged in a bloodbath after World War II, trying to exterminate their political opposition and a lot of innocent people died and they were never called to account for that. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of Catholics too. Right. Well, thank you for taking my question, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. All right, was, that, was that the last one? Or we do, we do one more. One more. 
One more. Here we go. All right. Um, or is it top top right zoomer. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, thank you for taking my question. I wanted to ask. Uh, do you think that essentially World War II was like manufactured from the beginning by special interests, bankers, Zionists, Freemasons, and the Rothschilds? Yes. It was a continuation of World War One, and that was exactly that. Exactly that. Uh, the, the Yes, <laughs> the short answer to your question is yes. There was a whole attempt. The American people did not want to get involved in World War II. They learned their lesson. America First was a huge political movement uh, based on mid Midwest manufacturing, a lot of people who had German heritage uh, with a spokesman like Lindbergh, and it was destroyed by Pearl Harbor. Roosevelt needed uh, something that big, and so he lured the Japanese into attacking us at Pearl Harbor to basically obliterate uh, domestic opposition to his program, to obliterate America first, and that continued. What do you think, uh, why do you think everybody got upset with Pat Buchanan when he ran for president in 1992? Because it was a resurrection of America first, and conservatism cannot tolerate America first. Okay, and so why did the Republican Party nominate Bob Dole? Because Bob, Bob Dole had no chance of winning the election. The Republicans knew that. It was an attempt to purge the Buchananites from the Republican Party. Keep that in mind, folks. Okay, uh, one more thing. Do you think essentially from the beginning, um, Hitler and the Nazis were meant to take the fall and the purpose was for them to lose the war? Uh, there's uh, Guido Preparat has written a book about how Hitler was created by as the most, he was promoted as the most extreme leader because he was the one most likely to get Germany into a war so that the English could finish off what they started in World War, World war II. So there's a people who feel that way. There were legitimate problems, complaints that the German people had largely because of the Versailles Treaty. Hitler tried, it's very similar to the Ukraine and the position of Putin right now. There were German minorities in places like Poland and Gdansk, Danzig, uh, who were being persecuted. Uh, Hitler felt that he had to represent these people uh, and uh, was tried to negotiate and the Poles wouldn't talk because uh, they had the English behind them. That's exactly the situation in the Ukraine. Even a thug like Zelensky was ready to negotiate a settlement with Putin until Boris Johnson showed up and says, no, no, we're going to fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood. Well, it was the British once again. Can I tell my Polish friends, please do not listen to the British anymore. Okay, do me a favor. We've had enough problems with that. Uh, anyway, that, that, was, that, was, that was the issue there. Okay, thank you so much for taking my question. You're welcome. All right, uh, time for the section of the show where we go to Cozy. Let's see, uh, we got a question from Dr. Dan. Dr. Dan asks, uh, EMJ, uh, you're obviously well-read. What are your reading habits like? Like how many pages per day for reading? I, I have no idea. I read until I fall asleep. And I don't know, how, and it depends. The number of pages depends on the difficulty of the book. 
So, uh, you know, I read, uh, you know, Dachau, in the Christus in Dachau, it's in German, uh, takes a little longer. And then I got to go back and I got to translate everything, everything I've uh, underlined. So that will take a while. So it depends. I don't have, a, I don't have a program. I basically have an idea and I follow the idea where the idea leads me and try to come up with some type of synthesis at the end. From Catulus, uh, is Bitcoin a good resource to gather? Should we have accumulated it for the future? Uh, can you speak about crypto? Yes, it's a tulip, a tulip bulb. It's a bubble. Uh, it's not currency. Only the government can issue currency. So anything, anything, if you, if people start buying something like a tulip bulb, which is what happened in Holland during the 17th century, I believe, it becomes valuable. And the more people who buy it, the more valuable it becomes until the bubble burst. So this will be valuable until the bubble burst. So I don't, I'm not recommending crypto. From VW Manu, question, uh, what are your thoughts on Sigrid uh, Hunk's Allah's son over the West? I, I don't understand. What, what did you say? S-I-G-R-I-E, Sigrid, H-U-N-K-E-S. Allah's over the sun. Never heard of it? Never heard. Is this German that you're reading? You're trying no, to read? I don't think so. Okay. No, I don't, I don't, I don't understand what the question is. Don't understand what those words are. No. And so I can't comment on it. All right. Uh, from Kingfish AF, uh, thoughts on the tiny house movement? Uh, since young people can't afford regular homes and have to pay rent. Ever hear of the tiny house? Movement? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen tiny houses. I, I, I think it, it only makes sense if you're single. Uh, if you are a married couple uh, and living according to God's plan, you're going to have children and you'll be soon out. You don't have room. Uh, this Look, this is one of the biggest problems uh, in Indiana because they, ch they changed the tax structure and started taxing rental properties out of existence. We had a lot of used housing here in South Bend and our great and illustrious uh, former mayor, who is now the worst uh, secretary of transportation in human history, made it his policy to tear down houses. Really stupid. Uh, because you destroyed affordable housing for a lot of people and you destroyed uh, rent income for a lot of people who were providing that, uh, that uh, affordable housing. So uh, I suggest used housing rather than these tiny houses because they're, they're, first of all, I've seen reports that they're more expensive than it seems. Uh, secondly, if you're more than a single person, it's got, you're going to get on each other's nerves. And thirdly, if you're a married couple and you start having children, you're, it'll, it'll be obsolete but with the first child. So I, I don't see it as a real good solution. From El Mexicano, in Israel, Jews spit on Christians. Are atheists... Uh, um are atheist international Jews like Fink and Zuckerberg driven by this same hatred? Yes. And how so? What's what's the difference? Is, is well, the war in the Ukraine. The war in Ukraine. Larry Flint, Larry Fink is behind the war in Ukraine because he's going to. First of all, the, the, what unites these Jews is a hatred of the Ukrainian people. Uh, they want to. They are engaged in the ethnic cleansing of the native population of the Ukraine because uh, they get to engage, they get, they win coming and going. 
First of all, they depopulate the Ukraine so that Larry Fink can come in and buy up the best farmland in Europe at pennies on the dollar. If at that, this is a looting operation that he's working out in collaboration with Zelensky. But at the same time, you drive those people into other countries and destroy their culture because it's weaponized migration. So you have uh, Ukrainian, millions of Ukrainians now heading westward. They are in Poland. They're causing problems in Poland because this is not a comment on the Ukrainian people. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the Ukrainian people, but when you have millions of them showing up at your doorstep who can't even speak your language, they are going to disrupt your culture. And I'm saying this is the Jewish plan for the destruction of Europe. Uh, future Minority asks, uh, you have advocated to bring back ethnic clothing. How can I re-embrace it? Uh, buy a Harris Tweed jacket. And, and, he, and then he asks, are Harris Tweed jackets exclusive to the Irish? They're, I believe they're Scottish. So look, there's a Donegal Tweed. I, I'm not, it's a brand name, okay? What I'm saying is that uh, I, I, <laughs> I got, <laughs> someone gave, a German friend gave me a Harris Tweed jacket. I had, had, I've been wearing suit jackets ever since I was a kid because you had to wear them when you went to school. And none of them ever had the quality of this jacket. And I just loved the thing. And I wore it everywhere. I wore it on the equator. I wore it in Norway. And the damn thing just wore out because I wore it too much. And then a good subscriber sent me another one. Okay, so I'm grateful for that. And, and, and Ravi and Devyani, they had me a custom-made jacket made in, in India by a tailor there. So I, I'm grateful for them too. But it's just a great piece of clothing. It's it's something where you're you're always the right temperature, whether it's cold or whether it's hot. It's just perfect. And and this is what the working men wore in Ireland when I was there in the 1970s. You know, you see a guy with a jackhammer and he's wearing a Harris tweed jacket because it's perfect for those conditions. It's a little bit water repellent. I mean, wool is a great fabric. Wool was the basis for the economy in Europe. And so I'm saying if you want to get back to it, it's something that is doable. It's doable. Go to uh, uh, use clothes, whatever they're called, Goodwill or St. Vincent de Paul, and you may find one because I found one. Uh, lapels are kind of wide, but it's it's a Harris Tweed a Harris Tweed jacket, and you can start uh, uh, I, I, I start regaining your culture, gaining your culture back. Now I have said this. I, I once said this to a bunch of uh, Nigerians who do have their own ethnic clothing, by the way. You can always tell a Nigerian uh, when you're in an airport simply by the way they dress. They have very a very flamboyant uh, 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 line of clothing. And I once said that to, to I, I, maybe it wasn't, I think whether it was Nigerian or not, but anyway, so I'm talking to women and the woman looked at me and he said, she said, well, uh, Ethnic clothing for us means walking around bare-breasted, and we're not going to do that. So that's not the case with us, with Europeans, okay? You don't have to walk around bare-breasted if you're a woman. Uh, but you can go to places like Bavaria, and you can see the resurgence of ethnic Bavarian consciousness in the clothing. The women wearing Dirndlkleider, and they all look fabulous when they wear that. Uh, the men wearing their own kind of, 
I, I don't know whether you've seen these Bavarian jackets. It's got a, a particular cut. It's usually kind of loden green. It's got, you know, it's, it's different. You can tell by it that they're, they're Bavarians. That indicates to me a resurgence of cultural identity, which is the opposite of what I engaged in when I was in Germany because I was a living advertisement for blue jeans when I played in that, that uh, rock band back then and everybody wore blue jeans. And I went to the head of the local uh, clothing store uh, and told him I was the only guy who wore lederhosen. Of course, the only guy who wears lederhosen in the village is an American. That makes perfect sense. So I go to the guy and say, what about ethnic clothing? And he told me no one would buy it. No one would wear it. You had to buy jeans and t-shirts. You had to sell jeans and t-shirts. Well, I think that's over. I think that era is over. Nobody, it's not 1975 anymore. Uh, and I think that this is one way that the Germans uh, and everyone uh, can reclaim their identity. Uh, from Future Citizen, uh, question, does Macron want to be at the BRICS slash SCO table to protect his French colonies? Yeah, I think this is the big question. And that's uh, that will be, I, I will predict that this will be the final nail in Macron's coffin if he does that. Remember what happened to Gaddafi. That was a warning shot for every single ruler in the, in the world, including the president of France. And he's, uh, Macron is a deeply conflicted guy uh, who's got to make up his mind. Uh, I think he's lost all credibility with the French. I think he should step down. I think someone else should replace him. But what we need are people who will actually represent their own people. And, uh, okay, uh, Giorgio Maloney, big, the great white hope, the Italian hope, uh, uh, a nationalist figure. Sorry, she's a, she's a tool of the Israel, Israelis. Ron DeSantis, all this type of stuff. We're all familiar with this. We need someone like the only guy I can see on the horizon is uh, the president of Hungary, who seems to be uh, genuinely dedicated to the interest of the Hungarian people. All right. Uh, a couple more, Doc? Yeah, a couple more. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, getting short on the list here. Uh, uh, from Groiping Gale, uh, what does EMJ think about the EU and European integration? It failed. It could have, could have become something, but it failed because it became, it was absorbed into the American empire. And what you could, what they did was create an elite, a ruling class elite that was loyal to American values. Uh, uh, the European Union is a subset of NATO. They have to go, the NATO rules trump anything the European Union does when it comes to important issues. And so, you know, United States doesn't care about the Reinheitsgebot on beer or stuff like that. But when it comes to, when push comes to shove, you have to, they have to do what we tell them. And that right now means war with the Ukraine. It means you have to deplete your military, uh, your, your tanks, send them to the Ukraine where they will be promptly blown up. And then you're going to have to buy uh, tanks from America now. This is a, an, an insidious plot. It was cooked up by Jews like Paul Wolfowitz and Anthony Blinken. And the, the uh, European people have to break free of that. They have to break free. They have to get, over, get out of NATO. They have to basically do it. If they, do, if they don't, aren't allowed to do this peaceably, in places like Germany, through a party like the AfD. The AfD just won an election in Thuringen. 
Okay, that's good because the Germans are now asserting their right to uh, the ballot box. If the Americans block this, there will be a revolution. And that's, the le that's exactly what's happening in France right now. From Haslittle uh, on Cozy, how do you explain God's infinite nature to low IQ individuals? <laughs> Read the Bible. First of all, IQ is a completely bogus concept. But if you're talking about simple people who live in an agrarian world, you know, what better example can you give of uh, the Bible? You know, it's like a seed. Um, the kingdom of God is like a, someone who went out and looked in a field. These are all very simple lessons. This is not, you don't have to have a PhD in philosophy to understand these lessons. It's already there written for you by God himself who understands human nature because he created it. And so that is understandable. Now, you could say, on the other hand, uh, what about hunter-gatherers? Well, there are people in the church, uh, like the Jesuits when they went to Paraguay, who felt that uh, hunter-gatherers could not understand the gospel because it's not written for hunter-gatherers. It's written for an agricultural people. And so they felt that they had to teach the Guarani uh, agriculture <clears throat> before they could teach them the gospel. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the exception that, uh, that proves the rule. But generally, no, the gospel was written by God who created human nature and knows God, that God knows that these are understandable stories. All right, one more. One more. All right, this, this one was from Telegram. It was a good one. From Fat Boy on Telegram, uh, what can a Baptist to, uh, do to get closer to Logos? You can join the Catholic Church. Look, I had a, a guy showed up here, uh, give a talk. He was a dean at Baylor. Uh, the late Bruce Fingerhut had published a book of his, and he started off by saying, you know, at Baylor, we decided we were going to look into the intellectual tradition of the Baptist Church. And then we realized we didn't have one. And so they had to hire Catholics. Well, that's, what's, that's what you, you know, so you can study, obviously a Baptist can study philosophy if you want, uh, but uh, the, the, the basis of, the broader basis of Logos is the Logos that has been promoted by the Catholic Church ever since St. John wrote his gospel and said, God is Logos. You know, you're, you, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you're not going to find it among the Baptists. It doesn't exist. And I'm not saying that. That was the dean from Baylor who said that. All right. Well, there you have it. Another episode of EMJ Live. For those who don't know, just happen to jump in. EMJ Live is every Friday at 5 Eastern Standard Time. And make sure everyone, please subscribe to Culture Wars Magazine at culturewars.com. And if you're interested in the books, Dr. Jones' books are all at fidelitypress.org. And obviously, if, if you're on Cozy and any of our other uh, platforms listening, subscribe and follow, whatever you do. It really helps us out, gets the word out. Uh, I have no announcements. Dr. Jones, what's the last word? See you next week. See you guys next week. All right. God bless everybody. <laughs>